We're going to read Genesis chapter 44, which is on page 38. It's on there. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, please, speak, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked my, his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely has been, he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my grey hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the grey hairs of, the, of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. 
For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would, that would find my father. Okay, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for today. Thank you for bringing each one of us here. Uh, thank you for this word that um, is true events that happened a long, long time ago, and we can read it just as it happened. Please help us to understand it. Uh, please help David to explain it well and to, that we can apply it to our lives. We pray also for the children, again, that they would understand your word, that you would help the adults that are teaching it to them. We pray that you'd um, plant it in their hearts and uh, it would grow um, as they grow as well. Uh, we pray that you bless each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. One of the main themes of recent weeks in our series of Genesis has been this regular theme of transformation, this theme of change, how over the span of 22 years or so, God has changed Joseph from how he had been at home, and we looked at him back then. Arguably, he was a rather arrogant, presumptuous teenager, as some can be, but God changed him from that into the man he has become the man that we have studied when Joseph served Potiphar in the penthouse, or when he served the jailer in the prison pit, and then he served Pharaoh now in the palace. But our Joseph, if we can tenderly refer to him as that, our Joseph has changed. He's matured, and of course, we would expect that of of anyone, wouldn't we? You know, as our children grow up and become teenagers and so forth, we expect them to naturally, to genetically, if I can use that word, grow up, we hope. They mature, they grow stronger, they, their minds develop, they, they become adolescents to then become adults. What's specific here, what can be said of all believers is though that as we grow up physically, we would also grow up spiritually. His teenage faith has matured through life's difficulties and through those challenging scenarios that we have studied together. What he believed to be true when he lived at home with his dad, those same beliefs about God and his identity as a believer have been tested. In the comfort and the safety of home, where he was daddy's favorite and daddy looked after him and all of that, the promises of God he believed to be true as he wore his multicolored robe and all of that, they have been put to the test through subsequent experiences of life. They have been put to the test, and as we have noted, whether Joseph was in the penthouse facing the temptation of adultery with Potiphar's wife, or he was in the prison serving others and interpreting the dreams of others and so forth. But Joseph continues his trust in God. His faith, his convictions have become clearer. 
And in those times of testing, in those times of waiting on God's timing, God has been preparing him for this role, this new role of Prime Minister of Egypt. God has been transforming Joseph and made him subsequently more and more usable and therefore more and more useful. Isn't that what we want to be? We want to be used of God, don't we? We want to be useful to God. We don't want to be worthless. We want to be useful, profitable to God. When we think of that, of being useful to God, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, and after having explained to them 11 chapters of the full gospel and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he tells them in chapter 12, verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's just one example of how the New Testament calls on all believers, on all who profess faith in Jesus Christ, to intentionally give themselves submit themselves to God's work of transformation, to recognize that, God, that Christ has not merely saved us from hell, but He has saved us from hell to Christ. He has saved us to Christ. He has attached us to Christ. We are in Christ to follow Christ, as we heard from the children's talk, to obey Christ to serve Christ, to glorify Christ, to be useful to Christ. In short, we have been saved by grace to be transformed by grace from who we were to become more and more like Him, our Savior. That's what the Bible calls our sanctification, where we're being changed, both passively as God is at work within us, sort of behind the scenes, but always at work, changing us subtly. God is at work in us passively, but also we're being changed intentionally. As we, as we read Scripture, we, we discover what God wants us to be, how He wants us to be, what He wants us to do, and we intentionally, we deliberately give ourselves to it. We do it. We change how we think. I used to think like that about those people or when that circumstance occurred. I used to think like that. But now, as I've read God's Word, it's changing the way I think. And now I think differently and therefore I behave differently. I'm a different person. I'm not perfect. Of course I'm not. Not yet. One day I will. But now... God is changing me as I give myself to what I discover 
he wants me to be. And what's so wonderful about all of this, and I hope you see it as a wonderful thing, that God doesn't just leave you as you are. What's so wonderful about this is that it's God who is driving it. Remember, our salvation is all of God. He chose us in Christ. He sent Christ for us. Christ saved us. And now God, through Christ, by His Spirit within us, is driving this, this transformation. God is always far more zealous than we are to change. He is, and that's a great encouragement to us this morning. But still, He calls us through Scripture to submit ourselves to His plan, His process of making us more and more like Jesus. Paul told the Christians at Philippi, Philippians 2 verse 12, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it's even more important, he says. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. He says this, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do you see that? God at work. Right now, even now, God in the lives of His people at work. In the hearts and the minds of His people, stirring in us longings to obey Him more, to follow Him more closely, longings for greater holiness, stirring in us greater affection for Him and for others. But God, by His Spirit, always at work, looking to transform our character bit by bit until we stand in His presence. And then He will have completed what He began when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That moment, that millisecond, whatever, however long it took, but that moment that you were justified through faith in Jesus Christ, the workmen turned up and began work in your life, as it were. God poured His Spirit into you. You were baptized in the Spirit. You made a new creature in Christ, and the work began to make you more and 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 more like Jesus Christ, His Son. And one day, He will finish the work. Friends, this is the great expectation of our Lord and Savior, that if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if we have come to Him knowing that we are sick from sin, the great expectation is that we actually get better. We cannot say, well, this is just the way I am. I am the man you married all those years ago, and this is all you get. Even though I'm a Christian, that's no excuse. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation, and that newness comes out more and more, more and more, and so on and so forth, through the rest of our lives. That Jesus, the one who justifies us when we put our trust in Him, also then sanctifies us as over time His grace, His truth has their way in us. And yes, of course, sometimes we're not aware of what's happening. We're, 
We're not, it's not obvious to us, you know, oh, I've changed, wow, that was amazing. You know, sometimes it's not clear to us what God is doing. But as, as I said last week, in certain circumstances of life, you, you may see the change. You may surprise yourself, actually, by behaving differently when you hit your thumb with the hammer. And back in the old days, wow, the, the air turned blue when you hit your thumb with the hammer. No, it's not, actually. It's different because you're different, because you're changing. Or when someone is driving slowly in front of you and you're desperate to get to church on time. Back in the old days, what did you do? You're pumping the horn and revving the engine and all of that, whereas now you're changing. Aren't you? You're changing. Things are getting better. Or when an attractive man or woman runs along in front of you. Back in the olden days, you behaved in a particular way, but now things are changing, aren't they? Hopefully. It's how we react to these experiences that will change over time as God is at work within us transforming us and making us more Christ-like. Joseph is changing. He has changed and he is still changing as God continues to work in him. We see that and we'll see more of it for sure. But what about his brothers? That's our focus this morning, the brothers again. In chapter 42, we saw signs of a troubled conscience when they connect their troubles in Egypt with their treatment of Joseph. In the past, God was at work there in their consciences, bringing them to realize, bringing to the surface the guilt of their past. In chapter 43, when they expected judgment from the Lord of the land, instead, to their surprise, they experienced shalom. We looked at that last week. Again and again, in Egypt, they heard that word shalom. God was gracious to them. God was merciful to them through, through Joseph and through others. They went expecting judgment, but the man who had the power to destroy them doesn't treat them as they deserve, but instead they're blessed. God was at work in them, and so we praise Him for that. We give Him thanks for that, but this is what God was doing in their lives. So they expected judgment, didn't they? They expected to face the wrath of the Lord of the land, but instead they faced mercy and peace. Instead, they're welcomed and fed from his table. They're made to feel relaxed in the presence of the one they feared. They were the ones who had so greatly sinned against this man all those years ago, and yet this man is now merciful to them, which again was such a picture of God to us. How we have so greatly sinned against him. You and I have so greatly offended our Creator, and yet He does not repay us as we deserve, as our trespasses deserve. But instead, what this man of mercy and shalom offers us is the forgiveness of our sins. And He adopts us into His family to experience all the blessings of that. 
Well, this morning we see more of that transforming work of God, that invincible work of grace in the lives of people. And here, especially, it's his brothers, Judah. Judah stands out clearly. Judah takes the lead in the family, seemingly. And clearly to us, as we look back through the New Testament, we we see in Judah this foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Christ and what he did and what he said for the sake of others. Last week, we left the brothers enjoying themselves, really a sort of a party atmosphere. Verse 34 of chapter 43, they drank and were merry with him. The brothers and the man that they dined with, there they are feasting together, drinking freely together with the sounds of laughter. Maybe you could hear them just sighing from the relief of not actually facing what they dreaded, but now actually enjoying themselves. And after the party, they, they fall asleep and so forth. And then we come into chapter 44, and we have two points this morning. First of all, we have the framing in verses 1 to 13, the framing. And hopefully you remember how when the brothers sold Joseph, uh, they sold him for 20 pieces of silver back in chapter 37, verse 28. And Well, Joseph tells his stewards to fill the men's bags full with grain, to put their money back in their bags, and to put his gold cup, was it? No, put his silver cup, actually. Put his silver cup in one of Benjamin's bags. And again, I believe these are little details that Joseph was subtly using in the minds of these people. Silver. Silver will betray these brothers. As they sold Joseph for silver all those years ago, there's it again. And again, it'll be connected with the youngest brother, the favorite in the family. So Joseph puts in place this frame. He's framing them up. And the brothers set off. And I can imagine them on their donkeys. Remember, those were the donkeys they feared they would lose, and they've still got them. So they're relieved. They're so relieved to be leaving Egypt with their donkeys, with Simeon, with Benjamin. The fear they had of going down there in case they lost either of them. We don't know how far they've gone, but Joseph sends the steward after them, having told the steward what to say to them and having told the steward what to do with them, especially with Benjamin. When the steward catches up and accuses them, the brothers of having stolen the silver cup, the brothers are understandably shocked. They try to reason with the steward, how could they have done this? Surely they brought the money back They brought valuables back to Egypt, so why would they now leave Egypt having stolen valuables? In fact, these men are so confident. Do you see how they promise in verse 9 that the one found with the cup will die? That just sounds like Jacob said. When Jacob was oblivious to what Rachel had done in stealing her father's idols, do you remember when Laban came after them? Laban was accusing Jacob of having stolen from the household, and Jacob boldly said, whoever has stolen this will die. These brothers are oblivious to what Joseph has done, and so they are confident that whoever has the cup will die, and the rest of them will become Joseph's slaves. And so, remember, the steward knows who's got the cup. He starts with the oldest. 
And use your imagination, he opens Reuben's bags and there's nothing there. And maybe having found nothing, Reuben nods, well, I told you so, didn't I? And then he moves on to Simeon's bag and then on to Levi's bag and then on to Judah's bag. And there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing, and so on and so forth. And maybe the sight of their money frightened them a little, for sure. They were frightened the last time, weren't they? But that was nothing to when the steward opens up Benjamin's sack and reaches in his hand and <gasps> holds up the cup. Aha! Look who's got the cup. As I thought about this this morning, you know, something that dawned on me, which I think is interesting. I don't know why, but I think it is interesting. <laughs> Benjamin says nothing throughout all of this. Nothing whatsoever. The focus is very much on him. He is the new favorite of the family. And yet, in the wisdom of God through Moses, the author here, there are no words from Benjamin saying, I didn't touch it. It wasn't me. There's no words of his brothers challenging him. Why did you take it, Benjamin? What, what are you thinking, man? There was nothing of that whatsoever. Nothing recorded of a reaction except this one thing, and look at what they do. All of them tear their clothes and return to the city. That's a good sign, actually. 22 years ago, it had only been Jacob who had torn his clothes when the brothers had selfishly sold Joseph to traders and then cowardly covered it up with presenting their father with Jacob's beautiful robe all blood-stained and ripped to shreds. But here, now that Benjamin, the new family favorite, now that he has been singled out, how do they react? Do they behave as they did before and only think of themselves? Or do we see proof of change in them? Has God transformed them more from how they once were? A bit more towards how they ought to be. Well, look at what they do in verse 13. None of them chooses to abandon their brother. Not one of them. You see, not one of them. None of them will lie to their father again to cover up their, their selfishness as they had done before. Not one of them. But all of them together tear their clothes. And all of them together go back to the city. That's good. That's positive. There's a selflessness now among them. And here they are, these people, the beginnings of the nation, out of which one day will come Jesus Christ, the truly selfless one. Jesus, who promises never to abandon even the weakest of his own. He promises never to forsake the, the weirdest of his own. Never, never will he abandon you. But here we see what the grace of God can do in selfish people, changing them, transforming them to be less selfish and much more thoughtful of others. And listen, more and more sacrificial for the sake of others. We'll come back to that word again later on this morning. So that was the framing. Secondly, we have the accusing, verses 14 
to 34. And again, Joseph gets to see another fulfillment of those dreams he had all those years ago of seeing his brothers bow down. Only here, it's not not a matter of bowing down in honor of Joseph. Rather, they're now groveling in fear of Joseph. These are men who have been caught. And the evidence against them is obviously against them. Look at what Judas says in verse 16. What shall we say? What shall we speak? What can we say? You've, you've, you've caught us. God has found us. The, the guilt of your servants. In other words, it wasn't Joseph's claim. This was only a claim of Joseph. He didn't actually practice divination. That would have been terribly wrong of him. But Judah here gives the glory to God. He is the one who's uncovered their guilt. He is the one who has brought it to light. But my question is, well, what guilt are we talking about since none of you stole Joseph's cup? So what guilt is there, Judah, that has come to light? Why, it's that old niggling guilt, you see. It's that old guilt that again the Lord has brought to the surface. The Lord, in troubling their conscience, has brought back to their memory again what they did to Joseph. You see, that hasn't been settled yet. Despite the brief distraction of the party they had, the feast and the drinking, that was just a brief distraction, you see. They have to face the reality of their sin. They still have to find peace for their soul. And that will not happen however much they drink or however much they may eat, or if we were to expand it and bring it up to today, however much they might smoke or inject. It might distract them, it might blur the conscience and the guilt for a night or for an hour, but come next morning, it's still there. You cannot drink away your guilt, friend. You can't smoke it away. Only God can take it away. And here these brothers are beginning to experience something of that. Until they have been properly reconciled with the one they have sinned against, there is no peace for their troubled souls. Do you notice here how Judah appears to now take the lead? Verses 14 and 16 and 18 and so forth. On behalf of all the brothers, he offers all of them to Joseph to become his servant. Only Joseph wants only Benjamin to remain. I'll just have Benjamin, and the rest of you can now go home. And this is brilliant. I know if you play chess, I know at least one person does. This is check, maybe even checkmate. This is brilliant, the move that Joseph has just made. Everything that he's been doing in previous chapters has been the, the build-up to this point where now these brothers have the ultimate opportunity to act as they would have before, selfishly. They must now decide at this very moment now whether to leave Benjamin and go home or, or what. What are they going to do? Well, what they choose to do, Judah steps forward to show, and according to Warren Wearsby, we come in this passage in Genesis 44 to the longest speech by a human in the whole book of Genesis. First of all, he intercedes before Joseph 
for Benjamin. He, he summarizes how it came to be that Benjamin was there at all. His father hadn't wanted Benjamin to go with them, but it was because Joseph had insisted on it that their father, had, who had already lost his other son, the father had to let his new beloved son go. And actually, as Joseph listens to what Judah says, Joseph now for the first time gets to hear how his father reacted when he didn't go home that day. He gets to hear in verse 27 of the heartache of his father, thinking that his son had been torn to pieces. I have never seen him since. He gets to hear too how worried his father was that something similar might now happen to Benjamin. That must have pulled on Joseph's heartstrings. That must have. To hear of his father's grief. But he also hears of the change in his brother's attitude because as you listen to what Judah says, as you look into what he says, he appears to now, Joseph begins to, he appears to now hear that the brothers have changed in their attitude to their father. They now viewed the favoritism of Rachel's sons over others. They've now come to terms with that. It doesn't bother them now, seemingly. I remember reading of a preacher illustrating this transforming power of God in someone's life, and he, he asked an artist in his congregation to paint him a picture. And as he preached on the transforming power of God, he had the picture up at the front throughout the service. And during the message, to the shock of his congregation, he walked across to the picture and just put a dirty, great, big, dark streak across it. And it was a, <gasps> there was a gasp and a horror at what the guy had done to the person's painting. But what happened next was all rigged, you see. It was framed. The artist came up to the front, picked up a new paintbrush, and from what had been ruined, brought about a beautiful new picture, actually involving the ruin, the streak, the awful mark, she incorporated that into what was now new and beautiful, wonderful. And that's what God does with you and me and here with these brothers. God uses our, our sin in our lives to our good. I'm not saying sin's good, obviously not, but but when we come to him and confess our sins, God is so great. He, he is able to use the ruin of our lives in his work of transformation in our lives. He, he uses our past pain, our past hurts. He uses our past abuse. He can take that and use it in us for our good, for his glory. No one wants to be abused, of course not. But in the mystery of God, in the sovereignty of God, he will take our past, whatever it was, and somehow work it for our good and for his glory, and, and, and that's what he's doing here with these brothers. Using the wrong they did, and that was obvious wrong what they did, but using it to affect them 
to change them. So much so that these sons of Leah are now accepting of the sons of Rachel. They are our father's favorite, and that's okay. However wrong it's of Jacob to do that, that's okay. We love our father, and we're happy that he's happy. More than that, they're concerned for the new favorite Benjamin. They, they appear to even love him. They're worried for how their father will react if Benjamin now disappears. In fact, verse 32 seems to show them sharing in their father's grief. If Benjamin doesn't go back down with them, we can't bear to see our father so upset. Friends, this is proof of transformation. 22 years ago, they didn't care what their father thought. That's why they ripped the robe and covered it in blood. They tricked their dad. And so for 22 years, they've watched their dad live in grief. But now they, they cannot do that again. That's change. But there's one final proof, the ultimate proof in the change of these brothers. We close with this. And that's Judah's offer of substitution. Offering himself for Benjamin. Look at verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What a change in this man. What a change in Judah from the man who'd effectively caused Joseph's death. You see there in verse 20, don't you? Remember, they, they don't know this is Joseph that they're speaking to. In verse 20, his brother is dead. As far as Judah's concerned, Joseph is dead. No more. Here was someone who effectively caused his brother's death, and now he does not want to cause his father's death. With all his sexual immorality with Tamar, we looked at in chapter 38. I remember that morning. It was uncomfortable. But all of that we saw, we might have written that man off, mightn't we? We might have just dismissed him as a lost case. This man is too bad, too perverse for God to use. But look at what God has done. God has taken such a sinner, such a messed up man, and by his grace and power, God is changing him. And so now he's willing to, arguably verse 33 conveys he's begging to effectively die in the place of Benjamin. Change. How do I know I'm changing? How do I know the life of Christ is in me? So much so that his power, his grace is changing me. Well, we could talk about hitting your thumb with a hammer. Maybe we could try that at the front, at the table here. Line up. We'll get Lydia to hit us with the hammer. And we'll see what comes out of our mouths. We, we could do that. We could do that. And I know people with fiery tempers who have come to faith in Christ have become less angry, and that's wonderful. We praise God for that. Of course we do. But friends, the ultimate proof of transformation in a believer's life will be like Judah here, that we become more and more sacrificial. When we become more and more like the ultimate Judah, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about it, if Judah offered himself in the place of Benjamin, 
if he was willing to do that, then think of Christ, think of Jesus. Think of the truly ultimate substitute for us, the one who offered his life in our place when he chose, willingly chose to suffer and die for our sin. When we, you and I, the guilty ones, the one who actually did the wrong, when we should have faced hell, when we should have remained as slaves for the penalty of our sin, Christ said, let me take their place so that they can go home, that they can go free. Let me die in their place. If that, friends, is what righteousness looks like in its most glorious form, then true transformation will be when men and women, when boys and girls who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but listen to these words, carefully to these words, True transformation will be seen when we become characteristically more and more like Jesus. I suspect after a message like this this morning, one or two of you will say, right, what, what am I going to do until lunchtime? <laughs> characteristically less selfish, characteristically less self-concerned, and we become characteristically more and more sacrificial. Sacrificial in your marriage. Do you want to improve your marriage? Both of you become more and more sacrificial. Characteristically in the classroom, characteristically in the office, characteristically in the church. When we think of someone, we think sacrificial because that is their character. When we think of Jesus Christ, we think sacrificial, don't we? He came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to be served, but to be served. No, He came not to be served, but to serve. Wherever God is at work in someone's life, that is what the great expectation is, that we become more and more like Jesus. When we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our hearts, that you, the living God, have not left us as you found us at conversion. But, Lord, what you began, you are continuing and we believe, Lord, you will complete. Father, forgive us when at times we resist you. Forgive us, Lord, then sometimes we, we say no to you like a disobedient child to their parent. We ask for your forgiveness of that. Lord, please overcome our rebellious hearts. 
And may you persuade us more and more that you are a good God, as we heard at the very beginning, a just and righteous and good and wise Father who loves us and always wants the best for us. Please forgive us when we question that, when we doubt it. And Lord, indeed, by your power at work in us, make us more sacrificial, not just today because we heard about it, but Lord, day by day, please work in us more of Jesus so that more of Christ, the life of Christ, is seen in us and to his praise and glory. God of heaven, hear us, we pray, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.